Hello and welcome to the Politics Home podcast. I'm your host for the week, Matt Foster. I'm news editor here at Politics Home and I'm joined as ever by Kevin Schofield, editor of politicshome.com. Hello, Kevin. Hello there, Matt. And I'm also delighted to be joined by uh, Seb Whale. Seb is the political editor of Parliament's in-house magazine, The House. Good to have you here, Seb. Hello, Matt. Nice to be here. Um, So as we uh, began recording this podcast, Theresa May just formally requested another Brexit delay. Uh, having stunned Westminster this week by reaching out to longtime political rival Jeremy Corbyn to try and strike a Brexit deal, and all signs now pointing to a much softer EU departure than the one she's been pushing for for the last few years. Inevitably, both leaders are now under fire from their own MPs. Labour are riven over a second referendum. Conservative Brexiteers are apoplectic about the idea of being bypassed in favour of Jeremy Corbyn's troops. And uh, the roof of Parliament literally started caving in this week. So it's just been another completely normal one in (laughs) Westminster. Um, Kevin, let's start with Theresa May's letter to Donald Tusk this morning um, before we kind of unpack her big Jeremy Corbyn gamble. Um, What she asked the EU Council President for? Uh, Basically, she's asked for another extension uh, to Article 50 to the 30th of June which uh, keen-eyed observers will remember is what she asked for about a fortnight ago uh, and was knocked back. And at that time, the EU were only willing to extend until the 12th of April, which is next Friday. Um, And if we were to agree, if Parliament was to agree a deal before then, then they would extend to the 22nd of May to allow the necessary legislation to go through. So, you know, here we are, as I say, seven days out from the 12th of April, still no sign of anything being agreed by Parliament, so the Prime Minister has basically had to say, look, hands up, we're not going to hit this deadline, can can you possibly extend to the 30th of June? But no-one seriously expects the EU to reply and say, yeah, that absolutely works for us, They're, they're going to ask for a much longer extension. So would the argument potentially be that she uh, she's you know, tried her best to get a, a, a limited extension, but you know the EU, if the EU say no, she can always point to that request at least to her party? Well, yeah, her, um, the point she's making in the letter, mm. and we can go into this in a bit more detail, sure. she's saying, well, look, I've set and trained this process. We're in talks with the Labour Party to hopefully get some kind of joint agreement, which will then go to Parliament and ideally... In no circumstances, Parliament would approve it. Or failing that, um, I'm going to bring forward um, a series of indicative votes, which again would be agreed with Labour, which would set out various options for Parliament to vote on, and in the hope that a majority could be found for one of those. So she's what she's saying is, look, I'm doing my level best here. We don't want to leave with no deal. You don't want that either. We want to leave in an orderly way, but in order to do that, we need a bit more time. So how's this uh, June 30th extension gone down with Brexiteers? What's the kind of initial sign from her party? Well, I think that the initial reaction is that it would require um, the UK to run European Parliament elections, but then the MEPs who are elected would never actually take their seats under this plan. And so it's been seen as a bit of a farce. I think the reason that she did it, as, as you sort of alluded to earlier, is to um, sort of appease the Brexiteers who would not stomach a long extension. And I think she knows that June 30th, that the, Euro- you know, the European Union isn't going to accept that, I think. All signs are pointing that they want a longer flex extension, as they're now calling it. Um, a flex extension? A flex extension. It's oh. a new, oh it's a new uh, addition to the uh, vernacular. Um, yeah, shoot me in the face. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, and, and, but, you know, she can just turn around to her Brexiteers when the, inev- you know, the inevitable happens and say, well, I tried. 
And I think she's just covering it back. And once again, perhaps she might argue putting party above country. And she can also say, if it doesn't happen, it's Corbyn's fault. You know. Yeah. You know, he can. He um, agreed to these talks. We've entered into them in good faith. The chances are, let's face it, they're not going to reach an agreement because they're so far apart on <coughs> how Brexit they think Brexit should proceed. So she can then, I guess, turn yeah. round and blame him if it all goes tits mm. up. So Philip Hammond should probably hold off on minting those uh, June 30th uh, commemorative <laughs> Brexit coins. <laughs> the commemorative coins. Just for the moment. Um, let, let, let's talk about this this big kind of dramatic roll of the dice Theresa May's made this week. Um, kind of reaching out to Jeremy Corbyn, calling for national unity. And we've seen um, d- days now of talks between Labour and the government. Um, Kevin, why has the PM had to make that move? Well, it came on the back of a seven-hour cabinet meeting, which is the longest in living memory, I think. Um, and it never, ever uh, is a good sign when cabinet meetings go on for a long time. It doesn't mean that they've all just agreed stuff. You know, there's obviously been a bit of a, a bit of a barney. So she came out and made yet another statement uh, to the country. I mean, I don't think there's ever been a prime minister who's made more statements from a lectern, either in the street or inside down and ten Downing Street than Theresa May is they're actually becoming quite boring now. Mm. Um, so yeah, so she came out and said, right, I'm going to have to ask for another extension, which is she's made good on that today, um, and I'm also, you know, handing out, uh, holding out an olive branch to Theresa uh, to Jeremy Corbyn, saying, look, come in and um, let's sit down in the national interest. She was appealing for national unity um, to agree a deal together which, as I said earlier, can then be put to Parliament possibly next week um, to, to vote and hopefully ratify. And then she said, if that's not possible, then you know, Parliament will get a, a, a series of votes on other options. So she's been backed, backed into a corner. I mean, the politics of this are quite straightforward, I think. Um, she's wanting to essentially dip um, Jeremy Corbyn's hands in the Brexit blood. She wants him to be um, as culpable for this farce as she is, um, to which you know, I would suggest you know, she's the Prime Minister, why should Jeremy Corbyn be the one that has to bail her out? But um, that's what she's wanting. Jeremy Corbyn wisely said, yeah, OK, we'll sit down with you. But the, the word is we're now into the third day of talks today and so far it doesn't sound as if they're making a lot of progress. Seb, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but hasn't the Prime Minister spent um, a, a lot of the last uh, few years calling Jeremy Corbyn a kind of dangerous socialist who loves Vladimir Putin? You're right, Matt, well observed. Um, yeah, well, there's the perils of, of slagging off your opponents and having to work with them. It reminds me of the early days of the coalition when Nick Clegg and David Cameron had that uh, joint presser in, in the Rose Garden. And then uh, there's a comment that David Cameron has said. He was asked, what's your favourite joke? And he said, Nick Clegg. And someone read that back to him. Um, yes, I mean, but I, I think, uh, you know, just carrying on with what Kevin said, I don't really think that, you know, these two have, have really shown the political dexterity to actually work cross-party in, in a particularly serious manner. And it is... A case for Corbyn where he looks kind of um, prime ministerial, serious, he's involved. And also, I, you know, Kevin and I actually spoke about this earlier this week. I think it kind of gives him a good out, potentially, from the second referendum conundrum, which maybe we'll come on to later, because he can say, well, I argued for a confirmatory vote, or I put forward, you know, the arguments for a second referendum, but they were, you know, battered away by the prime minister. Sorry, guys, I tried, kind yeah. of thing, which yeah. might get him out of the hole there. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really see, um, I don't think we've seen any signs yet that these talks are actually going to amount to anything. No, I mean, the word from inside 
the Labour camp is that, surprisingly, nothing much has changed and the government are still pushing their own deal. You know, they're trying to persuade Labour to back their deal rather than making any real real concessions to sort of move towards Labour's own position. What, what potential areas of common ground are there? Like, around what could a deal form, do you think? I mean, in terms of common ground from where they've been previously, that they're... Well, actually, you know, saying that the withdrawal agreement itself, you would think, in theory, Labour should be able to to sign up to, you know, because it it um, if it's passed, there would then be a twenty month transition period where nothing nothing would change. We'd still be in the single market and the customs union. If at the end of that uh, period, no future trade relationship had been agreed, there would then be the backstop, which would keep again keep the UK in a customs arrangement. So, you know, in theory, there's nothing. Stopping Labour from supporting that part, the, the bit where it all falls down is the political declaration, as it's called, the future relationship between the UK and EU after Brexit. That is where obviously there are major differences. Labour want a permanent customs union. Uh, Theresa May said absolutely no way because that would prevent us having um, uh, a, uh, an independent trade policy with the rest of the world. So there, there isn't massive common ground between them, but if we're going to get a deal, it's a hung parliament. If anything's going to get through the Commons, then there needs to be some sort of coming together. But they're probably the two worst leaders that we could have for the Tories and Labour at this particular moment in time because neither of them up until now have really shown much willingness throughout their careers really to, to compromise with the other side. This um, offer of fresh talks obviously comes after the, the premises deal was rejected three times Um is May's strategy now to kind of sideline the ERG, the, the hard Brexiteers and her, her party? And, and how have they reacted to this um, this gambit? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I, I sympathise with Theresa May. And then, actually, having said that, I don't, because this is the strategy she should have pursued two and a half years ago. Uh, but what she decided to do after the 2017 election was rely on all of the... Because she needed all the Conservative votes and she needed all of the DUP to get a deal across the line. And she, for some reason, didn't realise that some of the hardliners... On both sides, the pro-Remain and the, and the pro-Leave would not vote for her deal. Yeah. They, you know, one wants to crash out with no deal, the other set don't want to leave at all. And so it was clear to anyone who was paying attention that that was not the way to go about it. So you say sideline the, you know, the, the hardline Brexiteers. It's been self-evident for a while now that this is probably their best shot of getting the Brexit that they want or a form of you know, some kind of derivative of it um, via her deal and the political declaration. And yet, you know, the hardliners held out. And so she was left with no choice with, I think, what was the majority? 58 votes she lost by in the last... Last um, Friday. Yeah, last Friday. 59 or something. Yeah, 58, 59. And she's yeah. not going to win over, you know, your John Redwoods and your Steve Bakers. No, you still had, like, 28 hardcore yeah. uh, Brexiteer Tories voted against it last yeah. week. And they are pretty much irreconcilable. Yeah. But then throw in the DUP on top of that. Yeah. Um, but they always, uh, they always were irreconcilable. You know, yeah. that's, that's the thing. And, and she just... After the 2017 election, you know, the chief whip said it this week, last week, I can't remember, you know, that, that naturally um, pointed to, it was obvious that, that she had to work across party and across the floor of the house to get any kind of Brexit. And it would have to be a soft Brexit. And, and it's, it's almost like Downing Street have suddenly woken up this week and thought, shit, it was a hung parliament. Yeah. Who knew? That was two years yeah. ago. Why have they, you know, not realised? Um, and the chief whip surely mm. has been telling her behind the scenes, look, you're never going to get the numbers for this, yeah. so you're going to have to move towards Labour to try and win. You, you can only get this through on Labour votes, which obviously threatens to completely split 
Yeah. The Conservative Party. I mean, that's the other thing to bear in mind is that a customs union is anathema to the Brexiteer wing of the Tories. So if she was to sign up to that, then I mean, you could genuinely see a split in the Conservative Party, which would be absolutely yeah. seismic. And, and I, I would suggest that you know, okay. That might well have been the case had she pursued it two and a half years ago. But you can win an argument, and you, and you can, you know, Brexit was up for being defined. No one really knew what the you know, what the result meant. Not just necessarily what Brexit was, but what the result was. And then she defined it at Lancaster House, leaving the single market, suggesting leaving the customs union, and anything that backtracks from that point is seen as betraying Brexit. Yeah. And that was her fundamental failure. And she's she's basically dug herself into this hole. And what's funny is that you see a lot of the Brexiteers, if you look back to what they were saying before we voted to leave, you know, they were quite mm. comfortable with a Norway-style exactly. Brexit of staying in the single market. Um, and now that is that is treason yeah. as far as they're concerned, whereas that's what they were arguing for before. Yeah. I think Boris Johnson also said, you know, leaving the single market, you'd, you'd be mad to leave the single market. And now, you know, it's just completely um, ver- verboten as far as they're concerned. Mm. How have these uh, talks between May and Corbyn gone down with the um, DUP? I mean, presumably they're not thrilled at the idea of kind of Jeremy Corbyn in the driving seat, given his views on Ireland. Yeah, I mean, well, they've been very, very consistent all the way through. You know, they've said any deal which in any way um, threatens the integrity of the United Kingdom as they see it, they will not, they will not um, get on board with. And it's almost as if Theresa May has finally woken up to that fact and has now just basically cut them out of the process and has said, right, Forget it. We're never going to get the DUP's votes, so let's go and get try and get Labour on side. Um, the DUP have been kind of keeping keeping their own counsel this week. Although interestingly, Geoffrey Donaldson, who I'm reliably informed is in the running to be the next DUP leader, and I've spoken to someone who knows these things much better than me yesterday, who was saying that that Arlene Foster's probably going to be gone in June. This scandal back in mm-hmm. Northern Ireland with the RHI, the heating mm-hmm. yeah, cash for ash thing. They reckon that she won't be able to survive it, so that she'll probably be gone by the summer. So that'll again throw up a different dynamic. But he said, Jeffrey Donaldson said, he kind of hinted at the DUP could support a customs union, you know, as a way as a way forward. Um, although he backtracked a bit on Twitter yesterday, but yeah, ultimately their priority is to keep the United Kingdom together. So if that means getting a deal through that is softer, they would go for that. I mean, even like last Friday, N- Nigel Dodds. Like shocked everyone by saying he'd rather stay in the EU than sign up to a deal which threatened the UK, which was like wow, unbelievable, you know. So, um, so yeah, so I think they are persuadable towards a, a softer Brexit. Kevin, a big subplot to everything that's been going on this week, of course, is Labour's kind of ongoing tussle over a second Brexit referendum. Um, talk us through what you learned this week um, on on some of the kind of shadow cabinet tensions around this. Well, yeah, so there's there's two camps really, and they both try to interpret Labour's conference policy on a second referendum um, their own way. So you've got so basically Labour's policy was um, oppose Theresa May's deal. If it falls, we'll push for a general election. If that fails, explore all options, including a second referendum. So that's been interpreted by Jeremy Corbyn's office and his allies as, OK, we'll, have a, we'll reluctantly have a referendum, but only to stop, a, air quotes, damaging Tory Brexit or a no-deal Brexit. Whereas the other camp, so that's Keir Starmer, Emily Thornberry, Tom Watson, they say that any deal passed, even one that Labour signs up to, any deal, Brexit deal passed by the Commons, 
should then be put to the public in what's known as a confirmatory ballot. Um, so there's two opposing views here. Um, and this was a, there was a shadow cabinet meeting this week um, at which uh, these views were very forcefully um, put forward. Uh, Ian Lavery, the Labour chairman, said to Jeremy Corbyn, if you back a second referendum, you will go down as the Labour leader who split the party. You know, this could destroy the party. Um, obviously, the counter-argument to that is that polls suggest that anything up to 80% of Labour members actually support a second referendum. So, actually, you know, I'm not too sure if that's actually the case. Um, and also, just on Ian Lavery as well, he voted, he broke the, a three-line whip to abstain on a motion last week on a second referendum and offered his resignation, but it was rejected because he's Jeremy Corbyn's pal. Which is not the same treatment that's been handed out to other front benches in the past. Well, yeah, there was five, a couple of weeks ago, five Labour front benchers who voted against a second referendum. So they broke the whip to vote against a second referendum and they were encouraged to resign and they all lost their jobs. Whereas Ian Lavery, he did the same thing. He broke the whip and he's in the shadow cabinet. Um, as did John Trickett, who's also attends Shadow Cabinet, and they've both got away with it because they're mates with Jeremy. So that's caused a bit of a row as well. That's it's triggered a bit of a backlash among some Labour MPs who think there's kind of one rule for, for <laughs> those close to Jeremy Corbyn and, and another rule yeah, for Yeah, it's hard to, hard, hard to argue with that. Um, Seb, do you think there's a uh, realistic prospect that, that Labour will keep pushing for a, a kind of confirmatory a confirmatory vote? Or, as you mentioned earlier, do you think Jeremy Corbyn could kind of use these talks to share that option off and say, look, I tried, but it's not going to happen? I think that would be the politically smart thing to do. I mean, he had 25, I think it was, Labour MPs yesterday writing to him saying, you know, we're, we're very pleased that you're engaged with these talks, but don't back a referendum, please. And they were, you know, they included people like Melanie on. And, and a few front benches A few well. front benches, Gloria De Piero. Caroline Flint. Um, so, you know, there's not, there's not universal agreement on this in the PLP, let alone in the, in the wider country. Uh, I, think, I think the talks does present an opportunity for him to say, I pushed for it, I tried, but it didn't, it didn't work out. I also just don't think there were the numbers there in Parliament. And with Parliament as it is now, imagine them arguing about, you know, what the question is and all the rules and yeah. in terms of, of the referendum. Can you imagine that? I mean, the Tories would... I don't know what they'd do if, if, if the Prime Minister came out for one. I, I, interesting to see Geoffrey Cox not rule one out, did he? Yeah. In an interview with the BBC. And Philip Hammond. Philip Hammond. Philip Hammond. Piston. Yeah. Basically, he called it a, a reasonable proposition or something yeah. like that. Um, although he was then slapped down yesterday by Downing Street, who made the point that it's been the second referendum's been put to Parliament two or three times and it's been voted down each time. So. Yeah, I mean, there is an outside chance. I, n- I really didn't think there was a chance. But now, if, if that's the condition for Labour backing the deal and the Prime Minister, let's say, that, let's say for example, June 30th was agreed and the, you know, the prospect of crashing out was, was on the line, perhaps then she might agree to it. Uh, I didn't think that would ever be a, a prospect. But I guess now, you know, it's, it's all fair game, really. So do you think Labour can kind of ever reconcile its pretty pro-Remain membership with um, you know a, a kind of your sceptic leadership and, and key shadow cabinet figures who who are very sceptical about a kind of second referendum? I think Labour has actually played a little bit of a blinder so far in keeping those disparate parts mm-hmm. together because you've seen it. It's not just Labour, it's, it's all parties. There is a fundamental realignment going on here. I don't care people who say that's not true. You can see it. People are literally 
you know, leaving their own parties, two former ministers, two, two ministers who two and a half years ago were in the government, Nick Bowles and Anna Subri, have left that party that they represented in government. And that's just, that's mad. It was really weird, yeah. I mean, Nick Bowles, he quit uh, the Tories this week and had PMQs on Wednesday. It was really noticeable. He sat himself, it was really weird to see him on the opposition benches, and he sat himself slap bang in the middle of the Lib Dem MPs. Yeah. I mean, if I, if, we, if I said to you three years ago, you know, Anna Subri and Nick Bowles would uh, quit the Tory party. You know, oh, just yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, um, so I think so far, in answer to your question, they've done very, very well to keep that broad church largely together. They've done that mostly by fudging and this constructive ambiguity thing, whilst also incrementally showing a bit more leg to different sides. But, you know, eventually they will have to come to a view one way or you know, the other on a referendum or a single market, you know, this sort of common market 2.0, Norway plus style Brexit. They'll have to pick a side at some point and then it's, it's Hail Mary time. But it's not, that's not, you know, exclusive to uh, the Labour Party. Hello, it's Matt here with a message from Politics Home's central lobby team. Are you looking to engage with the most influential people in UK politics and ensure your message resonates with politicians, policymakers and national press? You can do so by becoming a Politics Home member. Politics Home members have the opportunity to publish interviews, op-eds and press releases which are promoted across our site, email bulletins and social media and managed by our team of consultants. To see how Politics Home can help your organisation engage with parliamentarians or if you're an MP or peer who'd like to write an article for Politics Home, please drop us an email at centrallobby, all one word, centrallobby at politicshome.com. Thanks. So the backdrop to all of this this week was um, MPs effectively seizing control of the uh, Article 50 process and um, gaining more power over the exit date. Um, We had the extraordinary scene of a bill going through all of its common stages in a single day. Kevin, talk us through what this bill actually does and kind of why it's different from all the other attempts to rule out a no-deal Brexit. Well, this is basically Parliament... um, passing a law to force the Prime Minister to do something, which is, you know, I mean, pretty much unprecedented, you know. It's like the Prime Minister literally just losing all control over her own government. Um, so this this bill would um, essentially force the Prime Minister to seek a, a longer extension to Article 50 if it looks like we're on the verge of a no-deal Brexit. Um but that's kind of been superseded a bit by the fact that she's just gone ahead now and asked for an extension. And it's probably next Wednesday, Emergency European Council Summit in Brussels is probably going to have to accept whatever um, Brussels offers her, you know. So they might say, well, like, OK, we, we, we see you are 30th of June, but we raise you, you know, to the 30th of um, January next year, for instance, you know. So in which case you wouldn't really be... Very, she wouldn't really have much much power to to say no. So, um, so yeah, it was um, extraordinary, really, to see Parliament behave in such a way. It, the House of Lords has now got to try and scrutinise it. They spent all day yesterday. They're going to continue on Monday. There was huge rows between pro Brexit and anti Brexit uh, peers yesterday. But, um, but yeah, we're just living in such febrile. God, it's such a cliche. I'm so sorry. God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Sorry for saying that. Oh, no, I can't believe I said five that. pounds in the fee well jar. <laughs> um, it's pretty much a fluid situation. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, I, I think it's, it's probably worth 
saying to to our listeners or, or just just trying to explain to them that this process that's happened in the Commons this week does not mean that a no deal Brexit is forever ruled no. out. It makes no. it it makes it less likely. But of course, the European Union still yeah. ultimately has to agree to, well, to have, any... They would any. have to agree to it, yeah. And then Parliament would also have to vote on a date. And at the moment, you know, trying to get this Parliament to agree a majority on anything is like herding cats, you know. So it's... Um, there's, I mean, there's still... It makes a no-deal Brexit far less likely. And I think it's much less likely than it was even this time last week. But um, it's still not been ruled out entirely. Seb, do you think the threat of this this process of um, kind of senior Labour MP Yvette Cooper and former Minister Oliver Letwin kind of teaming up to to seize control? Do you think that has shaped the Prime Minister's strategy this week at all, or was it a bit of a kind of sideshow? Well, you can see that in her asking for an extension. I think that was inevitable, though. Um, you know, she's also potentially going to bring back indicative votes, even though that vote was lost again on the floor of the House this week. So I think to a certain extent it has. What, what I personally believe it's done because it's taken off the power of, of no deal, which I understand why they've done that. But then that very much puts the ball in the EU's court and they can say, well, you know, in order to do that, we want a really long extension and they can really dictate the terms on which um, this whole thing operates now. And, you know, it does seem um, all but conclusive that it's going to be a soft Brexit unless they bring back the meaningful vote for a fourth go and the Brexiteers realise that. The only, the only other way out of it, I think, and th- time is really running out because it's definitely not happening on Monday, is that, you know, just say talks break down with Jeremy Corbyn, but they agree some sort of indicative votes to put to Parliament, and, and one of the options is Theresa May's deal. Mm. And if she's, then, if she's then presenting the Brexiteers with the options are second referendum, customs union, uh, Norway-style Brexit, or my withdrawal agreement, all of a sudden her withdrawal agreement seems incredibly attractive. All of a sudden that becomes the hard Brexit option. So, you know, if that if that doesn't persuade the Brexiteers to back it, then nothing will. Mm-hmm. So that might just be the one way that she gets this deal through, but even then, you know, the DUP are never going to do it. They will never, ever vote for this withdrawal agreement. So the chances are still, I would say, no. I'm beginning to think we've not fully taken back control. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, who would have thought it? We've got a, um, a bumper crop of listeners' questions. I'm to, going to have to, to go in a couple through. of minutes, unfortunately. That's okay. Obviously, Parliament, big things happen in Parliament, and I've got to Sorry. get there. I'll tell you what, Kevin, I'll throw the most important one at you first then. Um, should Neil Lennon get the Celtic job for next season? <laughs> Asks Simon Pyre. Simon Pyre. Pyre. Simon Pyre, yeah, former uh, colleague of mine, a oh. Scotsman, and a big Hibs fan. Oh. Uh, I would say, with a heavy heart, I don't want Neil Lennon to be Celtic manager. I apologise to everyone that's listened to this, when we want politics and doesn't give two hoots about Celtic. Sorry, we'll cut it out. Um, but I think, no, I love, I love Neil Lennon, but I think we, should, we could do a bit better than have him as a manager next year. There you go, go on, you can get out of here now. Oh, I can, oh, great, okay. You're free, <laughs> You're free right. to go. I'm sorry about this, but you know, <laughs> politics never sleeps. Mm. Have fun. And neither do we. So, Seb, it's just me and you now. Um, Things are going to get pretty intimate. Amorous. Absolutely. Uh, so, look, Georgina Mace asks, if there is a confirmatory second referendum and the question is yes or no for the deal finally agreed by Parliament, what happens if the vote is no? Does the whole process start over again? Gosh. 
So in that scenario, Parliament's voted for the deal. Yeah. Is then put to a confirmatory vote. Yeah. The public says no. Yeah. And the only other option, so it's literally just a referendum on the deal. Yeah. Well, I guess it depends on whether they take their referendum to be advisory or not. And I guess we're kind of back to square one. If they say no, then they have to go back to the European Union and say, well, we passed it in Parliament. It depends. I think it would be up to the interpretation of the Prime Minister of the day. That would be my understanding of it. And as to whether they took that as an instruction or just as a kind of suggestion. And obviously, if they went, oh, sorry, well, we're going to do it anyway, then there could be anarchy in the streets. Um, but that's why we're, you know, we're into that quagmire of, of what a confirmatory vote would look like and what would be on the ballot paper, because if that was a no, then what happens next? And, you know, all options would be on the table, staying in the EU or going back to square one with negotiations. I mean, just even thinking about it is stressing me out. So, Georgina, the answer is it, it's quite complicated. And please don't make us do any more predictions. They're always, yeah, always wrong. Um, Jordan Hassou asks, um, this is uh, this is a good one, Jordan Hassou asks, assuming there is still a party to lead, who is your bet for the next Tory leader, Seb? Well, I, th- I, I do have views on this because a lot of the names that have been in the running, and I wrote about it on uh, for Politics Home in the House this week, I just, I just don't really rate, I don't understand why we're talking about a lot of them. They all have been members of the Cabinet, Theresa May's cabinet, you know, we, we're looking at people like Dominic Raab, Michael Gove, um, Penny Morden, Matt Hancock, these kind of people. Um, you know, half the people in the running lost out to Theresa May anyway. And we are where we are with Theresa May's leadership. And they're also, you know, tarred with this cabinet, which I don't think anyone's going to look back on with any particular uh, glee or, or happiness or with many positive things to say about I think, you know, fundamentally, the, the leader, it, there will be a battle for the soul of the Tory party, I think, with regards to who the next leader is, and a lot of talk is that it's going to be a Brexiteer. I personally think um, the best thing for the Conservative Party would be to have a fresh face, someone who's not necessarily associated with the Cabinet or this government. There's a lot of talent out there. Tom Tuggenhout is very talented. Uh, Seema Kennedy is, is talented. I don't think she's necessarily going to be a leader. She's also Prime Minister's PPS, so she's she's sort of sullied in that way. Um, and there's also, you know, Graham Brady, who I should probably disclose is actually, he, he edits the House magazine that I work for, but I think he would be quite a respected sort of caretaker Prime Minister. He's a party man. He's he's, he's respected across, um, across all sides of the Conservative Party. But I think that, you know, the, the Tory party's best interest might well be to go for a fresh face and a fresh start rather than you know, trying to turn Sajid Javid or Jeremy Hunt into some kind of compelling leader, which I don't mean to be rude, but I just haven't seen any evidence of them being. Um, you know, Michael Gove is an excellent speaker. However, he's, he's you know, tired with this legacy from the time in DfE and obviously the 2016 contest. Boris Johnson, again, he can, he can stir a crowd and get people motivated. And against Corbyn, that might be quite a good, quite a good run for the Tories. Equally... You might have people leave the party. You might have MPs quit. Um, there's plenty going on in Boris's background that will keep coming up. The 2016 referendum, his performance as Foreign Secretary. I just think a, a clean start and a fresh face and someone who comes in and, and you know could kind of capture the public's imagination a little bit, as I said, someone like a Tom Tugendhat, I think could well actually serve them well. If they don't do that, then uh, I think it's just going to be more of the same. So, so what you're telling me is, you know, in the, in the Westminster Tea Rooms, you're not hearing people say, uh, you know, 
David Liddington is the, the saviour right now. That that's what we need because that was floated a few weeks ago and seems to have gone incredibly quiet. The idea of a caretaker. It's, so this is just this is classic Westminster because David Liddington is really, really he is a very, very nice guy, very you know, competent, all the cliches you want me to say, but um, he is a, a complete Europhile, far more so than Theresa May. Uh, also, you know, God love him, he's not exactly a, a massive sort of character or ball of charisma a bit like the prime minister and so you know suddenly that he might the idea that he might be the answer to our problems is just is just for the birds really and, and like you know brexiteers and the tory party would never stomach that and i think that's what that's what i mean i feel like with the leadership contenders we're talking about we're not seeing the woods for the trees i remember when theresa may you know was she when they were doing the 2016 contest was talking about how you know she wasn't someone who sort of you know gossiped in the tea rooms and did all this kind of thing and spoke to journalists and it was like oh she's great and then her first PMQs was like wow she wiped the floor with Corbyn yeah look where we are now yeah. you know somebody who's not been able to build a support base and not been able yeah. to kind of relate to MPs on a on a personal level mm. now struggles to command their loyalty yeah funny that isn't it I mean yeah <laughs> and, and I think that's that goes for a lot of them you know Boris has always been criticized for not sort of reaching out across the house you know with uh, with Tory MPs um and, you know, quite a lot of the cabinet are, are quite divisive. You know, the only people I would say could be interesting would be Matt Hancock and Penny Morden, who have both kind of kept themselves to themselves whilst being fairly competent, I think. Mm. Like, I think Penny Morden um, split some of the Brexiteers when she didn't resign over the withdrawal agreement. But now, I think she's been vindicated in a way because perhaps, you know, it was prescient and, and she could see that that was one, of, one clear way out of the European Union. Um, Matt Hancock... Has had a decent conversion from a kind of geeky, you know, DCMS minister. He's really cool now. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say he's got that far, but you know, he you know he, he did all that you know parkour stuff, and he got stuck in, and he, he sings mm. sings karaoke, and I think maybe not. He wasn't like a laughing stock by any stretch, but he was he was kind of like a jovial figure, and now he's seen as quite serious. As you know, he's in Department of Health, which is a different ball game altogether. And um, has has largely been positive about Brexit, and so he, you know he could be one to watch. But I think a fresh face would, would serve them well. Um, this is a question from Indigo Square, which is a letting agent. So good to know <laughs> we've just inadvertently plugged that one. Okay. Um, at what point did the Brexit debate jump the shark for you? I mean, I don't know whether that's the entire process, or you know, was there a point in which you were like, bloody hell, make it. Make it stop. Make it stop. I think I reached that point on the 24th of June. Um, at what point did it jump the shark? I don't know, man. I feel, I feel like in the last six months, it's really, it's really turned the screw and become something. I, I, I do feel, you know, a semi-serious point that it has completely, it's worn heavily on all of us. Yeah. Uh, MPs, staffers, journalists, members of the public, everyone, everyone watching. And it has reached, you know... Fast sort of came and went, and things like you know the the comments leaking and all that kind of stuff. I think it would have it, it, at one point it was sort of funny, and now it's just reached this this point where you, you just wouldn't dare to write it because it's just ridiculous. Um, and, but my sense is it's only going to get worse. So I, I think there are t- there are two moments that that jump out for me, and one is obviously the you know the Michael Gove had enough of experts comment, yeah, which to me summed up some of the kind of. Um, if we just believe hard enough, it will be okay mentality of the Brexiteers. And then it's been the kind of 
internal war of the kind of people's vote campaign with the Lib Dems yeah. and TIG where Remainers clearly are, are all trying to stake their own bit of territory out and don't really want to compromise on, on their kind of long-held positions. And I, those two mm. bits of the debate to me make me feel kind of like we really will struggle to get out of this yeah. impasse without something going horribly wrong. Actually, I've just remembered the point where I was like, okay, I've had enough of this now. It's red, white and blue Brexit. Oh, oh no. I think that was it. That we, was... Don't, we don't hear much about the uh, red, white and blue yeah. Brexit anymore, do yeah. we? Which, which is that. a shame. I was a big, a big fan of that. Um, we've got a one more question which kind of leads on from some of the stuff you were talking about earlier. It's actually from Vicky Wong, who used to be a Politics Home reporter right. herself. Excellent. Um, so she knows what we're going through at the moment. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very, how stressed is everyone on the Poll Home and House Magazine team? And do you need me to send you a hamper of emergency Brexit snacks? Definitely for the last point. Yeah. I think for the House Magazine, it's probably about... We're probably about an eight or a nine, trying to plan a weekly magazine, which we normally have, you know, interviews set out in advance and themes and topic areas we like to explore. But trying to do that during the Brexit, you know, mess is, is nigh on impossible. So I'd say we're about an eight or a nine. What about you on Poll Home? Uh, I, I veer between um, ten and, and kind of a five because I'm, I keep, I'm constantly pulled back to thinking, yeah, but this is a really important moment in our country's history. And we're hugely lucky to be around this place, covering it for better or worse, you know, talking to MPs and, and peers about what's happening. So you do feel you feel lucky you've got kind of a, you know, a seat as history happens. And I think, oh, well, if I don't really throw myself into it, I'll look back on this in, in 20, 30 years and think, oh, just, you know, I had a nap instead. But then also you have to eat and you have to live and you have to remember that, there's a whole world outside there of family and friends and people you care about who surprisingly aren't interested in indicative votes. I've gone home a few nights and started talking to my partner about, I was like, yeah, the, I'll tell you what, let win Cooper. And she's just like, go to bed. It's just like, <laughs> just stop talking to me. I don't want to hear about this stuff. Because she, she like, like most normal people, she checks into Brexit maybe twice a week mm. and she'll see a headline of oh they've ruled out no deal and not know what the hell that means or she'll she'll see you know some abs- absurd comment somebody's made that, that's blown up but I think for most people there's just a sense of like confusion and disarray and disinterest at this point so I think if you're in the bubble you have to remember that most people in the world aren't obsessed with it and you have to try and carry that into your life and be a normal functioning person so so a 7.5, please, please send snacks, whatever you fancy. Um, I'll eat it all. At this point, you know, there is no limit on what I'll, what I'll eat to cope with yeah. the, this process. And booze. And booze, yeah. And cigarettes. Just, just point out, apparently the cabinet were cracking open the wine after, the, uh, after that long seven and a half hour yeah. marathon session. They just started hitting the booze. So yeah. that's, I'm not sure that sends out the right right message to the country but it also you know allows us all to do the same yeah it's fine there's a Chilean red wine wasn't it oh there you go yeah there you go not very British sounding no absolutely what's wrong with red white and blue wine yeah um on that patriotic note, I'm afraid that is all we've got time for on the Politics Home podcast this week. Thank you so much for sending all your questions in. 
Um, we love to hear them. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also sign up for our free seven-day-a-week breakfast briefing by going to politicshome.com forward slash register. Until next week, have a good one. Thank <laughs> you.